All right. David's great sin. I think most of us are familiar with this chapter. It is very easy to be self-righteous and condemning looking at uh, the story of David. And I say that because I find most commentators, uh, to me, are just that. Uh, But on the other hand, it is not advisable that we, knowing David is going to be forgiven for this great sin, that we somehow trivialize it or dismiss the the gravity of the sin. It's It's a horrible section. And so this is the chapter that we have not been waiting for. At least I have not been waiting for it. Uh, Some stories in the Bible I I really don't care for. Yet, uh, those stories are profoundly helpful, necessary. They must be read and studied and applied as best we can. And and this is one of them. Uh, the, uh, The reason why I don't like some of the chapters that I have in mind is because they are tragic. For example, the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, that's not a chapter you cheer yourself up with. There is the selling of Joseph by his brothers into slavery. It's not amusing. There are many lessons with both of them. I'm not at all speaking against what the Bible has to give us. I'm just telling you uh, like it is. The story of David and Bathsheba is not easy reading. And then there is the crucifixion of Christ. As as essential as it is. It doesn't mean I like to hear about him being spat upon and then crucified, even though it is for my sins. I wouldn't take any of the stories out of the Bible. But they force me to face things that I would otherwise not confront, which is the beauty of God's word. And as for the fall of man, women are still quicker to listen to Satan in the quest for knowledge than men are, and this is carried over into the New Testament. Brothers still can cast their brothers into misery, again, from the story of Joseph. And Christ is still vilified by many lost souls. And as for David and Bathsheba, great and godly men and women can and do stumble together, and then all the other Christians are on trial also. How will, we treat, how will we treat them? Let's take them out back and shoot them as the behavior of some, in Jesus' name, in a quest for some sort of righteousness that is not found in Christ. Others, I think, rightly so, look for a process of restoration as best as it can be gained if the participants are repentive. Well, sins, of course, ruin Sin ruins everything it touches, without exception. It just has to brush up against it. Even this is brought out in Haggai the prophet. You know, if, if a righteous thing is touched by an unclean thing, that righteous thing is unclean, and it doesn't go the other way. Uh, you know, if you touch something that's contaminated physically, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to clean it. Sometimes, though, it does. Therefore, because sin ruins everything it touches. Our eyes are on God. How is he going to handle this? Well, first we've got to get through this 11th chapter before we begin to get to that part. But here is a man after God's own heart and a man greatly loved by God. That love never stops. And uh, David will repent. God will forgive. 
There will be consequences, and we have to pay attention to all of it. 500 years later, Ezekiel says this, speaking about the millennial reign of Christ. And I take the position that David will be the human overseer in Jerusalem. Christ, of course, will be Lord of all. Uh, and this is the verse. Uh, some don't agree with that, but, you know, that's, that's how it is. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Well, whether it's David literally reigning as the mayor of Jerusalem in some capacity of leadership, whether that is the case or not, this is the fact that God is still honoring the man. 500 years after these events, over 500, and then thousands of years later, David is still held in high esteem by God. And we have to remember this as we go through this story. That is critical to what is taking place. If this is true of David, then there's hope for the brothers of Joseph who sold him into slavery and went on about their business. Acts chapter 13, verse 34, and that he raised him, that is Christ, from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David and how I want the sure mercies of David on my life. And so that's the introduction to this tragic chapter, David's great sin. And it could have been many titles given to it, none of them, uh, well, very easily retaining the, the meaning of it all. Now, verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So this is continuing the war that began in chapter 10 when David sent his condolences to the king of Ammon, the, well, now the son of the king that died, and they were shamefully treated. And that was an act of war. And David, of course, sent Joab then. David stayed back. So this is not the first time David is staying back. And Joab goes, and this big war breaks out. The Syrians get involved, and mercenaries, and David wins. And back and forth they go. I outlined that last session. But uh, this is the springtime, because food is more plentiful for the troops in the spring than it is in the winter. The winters in that part of the world are more rainy than they are cold. Well, there is some uh, cold there too. But uh, when kings go out to battle, it says. But this king did not go out as the head of his army. This was the wrong time to delegate such a responsibility. He remained where he should not have been. That's critical to this story. That's why it is posted the way it is posted by the historian. Temptation will wiggle its way to this king because he's not where he is supposed to be. And that is a profound lesson for all of us. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel in verse 1. Uh, this is, again, the second time that he does this. The first time he got away with it, but it seems that uh, now it's becoming uh, easier for David to send someone else to do his work for him. A uh, pattern is being developed. It won't, from what we know, the information we have, it's just the second time and that's all it took. Were the comforts of that new palace luring him into a state of pleasure first? 
I think that was a big part of it. I think he was really enjoying himself in the flesh. It says, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And again, that's Joab uh, with the army of Israel and not David. But David remained in Jerusalem. I know it sounds like I'm being redundant, but I think these points merit a repetition to some degree. David is probably in his latter 50s as far as his age goes. Uh, The rabbis of uh, old say he was about 57, 58. Uh, That's not too, uh, that's easy to believe. We know that Bathsheba was much younger. When David is old and on his deathbed, she is still very much uh, active. In fact, she becomes a big part of saving the kingdom uh, when David is about to die. And we'll get uh, that when we get to kings. However, uh, it is dangerous for God's people to stay behind when the army goes to battle. Some, some, you know, many of you know, there are times, you know, you should have gone to church, but you wanted to feed the flesh. You stayed home and then you regretted it. Even if nothing happened, you just, you knew you were not at your post. You missed formation. And that was the Holy Spirit just gently saying to you, you know, if you keep this up, it's not going to go well for you because you have much to give to others, whether you know it or not. This does not always mean that the place of peace is the place of safety. It can be more dangerous in the place of peace than it is on the battlefield, the actual battlefield. It uh, means, rather, that any place that is our duty to be and we are not there is the most dangerous place. If it is my duty to be in this pulpit and I am not here, I am in the most dangerous place. If I'm not supposed to be here but somewhere else, uh, and, and that you, you follow the logic, I hope. It is where God has us. Because every place on this earth is spiritually perilous. Some more so than others. Had David been with his army, instead of in the palace, this sin would have been dodged, uh, more than likely. Certainly with all of, you know, when they all would come back and Uriah would have been home, it would have just uh, made things a lot different. And so the moment, repeating what I said last week, we forget, the moment we forget that life is a battlefield and not an end to itself, uh, where there are no spectators. We are all participants in this war, like it or not, every age. Once we forget these things, the problem of life is made worse. It becomes confusing. And when we are confused, we are weaker. We are not stronger. Does anybody like to be confused? I don't like to be confused. I prefer being level-headed. We call it being cool, I guess. Uh, Yep, we are told David stayed behind to inform us of that old-time adage, or adage, if you prefer, that idle hands are the tools of the devil and the flesh. That's why. Really, the devil, he he has to use the flesh of the world to pull off what he's going to do. Verse 2 And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Ominous words, are they not? Then it happened one evening. See, we know the story. And when we read that, that's when the drama music would play. If we were watching a play or a a rendering of this in theater, that's when the music would come in. 
Then it happened one evening. Lust only needs one evening, one shot. It says David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. Well, he had his afternoon siesta. When it's evening, there's still enough daylight to see. It is, you know, the Jewish day is from sundown to sundown. And he's approaching that. So he had his nap. And then he gets up to go outside and enjoy, you know, how it is. You know, you wake up now and he's on the terrace. <clears throat> and from the roof... <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> uh, thank you. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, she knew she was visible. I, I, Bathsheba is not the main uh, problem, but she's part of the problem. It takes two to tango. Uh, you've, she knows she can see the, king, the palace of the king. And, you know, she's not that naive. Uh, not that in, and how, do, how, do, how can I say that with any strength because the story doesn't say, well, when David invites her, there's no hesitation. There's no molesting going on. She is a willful participant. And uh, she, she wanted to be noticed. You, you, there's no way around that. Uh, would any of you go out into your backyard nude if you knew there was any chance of someone seeing you unless you wanted them to see you? Don't answer the question, please. Uh, she wanted attention, and that, was, that is a problem that the ladies have to watch more than the men. There's some things men are more susceptible than women are, as a rule, and then vice versa. There are things that men are more susceptible to than, uh, well, the other way, however I said it. You, you can sort it out. You know what I mean. I'm testing to see if you're wise. Uh, and and you, to fake it, to pretend that it's not so, you end up in this mess that we have as a culture where there's no difference between men and women, this absurdity that... Uh, you, you can't even use the word pregnancy around some people. They're so uptight with Satan. Well, anyway, uh, all that follows in this story is the result of this look. Were there other episodes? Maybe. We're not told. doesn't need to be. One is all it takes. It happened one evening, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Well, that's not her fault. And it doesn't make it his right either. That's not an excuse. That's not a defense before God. Well, she was irresistible. Well, lead us not into temptation comes the prayer. And this is just what Christ, these kind of things have in mind, to, that I am not lured into sin, whatever brand it may be. Some are very strong when it comes to sexual lust, but very weak maybe when it comes to substance abuse. You see, there's, there's a brand for everybody. So the four things a pastor has to watch is self, that's pride, exaltation. Yeah, I am actually pretty good. They're getting the best pastoring they're ever going to get. The best preaching, yeah, that's pride. Sloth, doesn't do his work, gets up into the pulpit and tells stories and gives statistics because he's not digging into the word. When he feels that the scripture is becoming so common to him that it's almost boring, he doesn't fight back. Then there is silver. He wants to get rich off the ministry, and then there is sex. One of those four are going to be hurled at the pastor, and it is up to him to have countermeasures in place. And fortunately, uh, that is true, that he can have countermeasures, and this is also true. If that is his susceptibility, it's yours too. Because you have to deal with the same force and the four S's, sin, self, sloth, and sex. In some way, 
They're going to try to overtake you. And you are supposed to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I have met men that were given to drink and really not other sins really didn't lure them. That was the one and it did its damage. So we cannot prevent unclean and wandering thoughts because they are invasive. But we can set up a perimeter. We can set up defenses to weaken them, to slow them down. That's what the salt of the earth means. The salt does not take away that which corrupts, it slows it down. And how much time do I need to get to heaven? That's how much time I need. I need it to slow it down enough for me to get to heaven. I don't want to live to be 969 years old as Methuselah. How long did it take him to find his shoes in the morning at that age? My dad would say, you're slow as Methuselah. And I never got it. Who is that guy? And then I found out how old he was and said, boy... If a hundred-year-old moves slow, how, how slowly does a 900-year-old? Anyway, Paul writes to the Corinthians, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience <coughs> pardon me, of Christ. I go through this every year. It's like, okay, here we go. It's so humiliating. I don't have to worry about that, that self one too much. I get humbled like that. Anyhow... <coughs> I'm going to do a commentary on it one day. Yeah, all right, you'll love that. Anyway, uh, taking every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You've got to fight it, and it is tough. You say, I, Pastor, I've tried, and I keep failing. Well, God keeps loving you, doesn't he? And he keeps expecting you to keep fighting it. What he does not expect you to do is quit, turn tail, and run, and plunge into the sin, and justify, well, I tried, it didn't work out. <clears throat> That's a recipe for apostasy. Uh, Satan hates that you get back up. Uh, Job put it this way, though he slay me, I will trust him. I put it this way, though I might fail and don't understand why I don't get more help in this area, I will trust him because I cannot unsee him as my savior. Verse 3, so David, we're only up to verse 2. We've got to get through this tonight. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You just got to love that, right? Is this not the daughter? It's so dramatic. I, I don't know. It transfers from the Hebrew, but whoever translates it into the English, I think they, they uh, I don't know. Anyway, so he liked what he saw, and he wanted to know, well, is she married? Who is she? Uh, and the answer should have stopped him, and it did not. What a lesson. His flesh was gaining momentum. The spirit was being overruled. Lust was morphing quickly into sin, off and running. Sin doesn't care anything about our morals, our love for Jesus or others or reason. It just wants to be satisfied. And it cannot. It's insatiable. It just wants its attention. And Satan is relentless in his attacks. And we know this. That's why this story is so important to us. We're never out of sin's reach. Okay, I get that. But I'm also never out of the reach of righteousness, too. And so the war is on. Temptation stalks us. Well, we are to learn how to put camouflage on, which is perplexing. Because why is it that when people wear camouflage, I can see them? Anyhow, uh, we find that we may be after God's heart and still against God's heart and our behavior. We know that. 
It does not have to be, again, the sin of David or Bathsheba. There are many brands out there. It's how we fight back that really matters. And someone said, so others were in on this from the beginning, but none of them knew where this was going. Where was it going? Well, it was covetedness first, and then came the adultery, and then followed the lies, and then murder, and not only murder, death. Because it wasn't just Uriah who died because of this sin. There were other troops that were killed on the battlefield to cover David's sin. And it wasn't only, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but David was looking out for Bathsheba too. Sometimes I think if Abigail were around the palace, probably all the times I think this, if she were, maybe she died, maybe she went back to her ranch. Because I feel strongly if Abigail was still in the palace, that she would have deterred David from such things. She just had that going on for her, uh, a gift of her personality. Uh, where was she? We don't read of her. She had one child with David, as far as we know, and, and that was it. And uh, she again, she either died or went back to the ranch, hopefully nothing worse than that. The daughter of Eliam, this is important to the story of David's life. This would be Ahithophel's granddaughter. Eliam was his son, according to Chronicles, and that would make Ahithophel, who was one of David's counselors, who will join Absalom in his rebellion against David, and it's likely that this event left that sour note in his heart. You know, you sinned with my granddaughter, uh, and and, uh, he probably began to hate David after this. This would account also for her close proximity to the palace. Why was she so close to the boss? She was connected to her family, and Uriah being <clears throat> the grandson by marriage to Ahithophel. Uh, again, I mentioned she was evidently much younger. First Kings chapter 1. So Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king. Now, this is when David was old. Now, the king was very old, and Abishag the Shulamite was serving the king. And so they point out that he was very old, and the inference is she was not, and that would mean that David's much older than her, and, uh, you know, you can't read the story without saying, how great would David have been had he not stumbled like this? And then you have to follow up and say, but how great a lesson do I learn about God's mercy? By just watching how he treats David. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, he was evidently a convert to Judaism. A Hittite was not a Jew. They lived in that region. Their glory days were past as a people. And uh, this did not stop David finding this out. But maybe, did did David justify his sin? Say, well, you know, he's not really a child of Abraham or Jacob. He's really not a Jew. Did he do something? Because that's what the flesh will do. The flesh will grasp a drowning man grasping for a straw. So will the flesh will grab at anything it can do to justify the sin in its, and blind the host. Verse 4, Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. Well, it's not nice to know youth here tonight. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they have to learn. You know, they learn at an early age, especially the ones that live on a farm. They just watch the animals, what they do. And they, there's the lesson on the birds and the bees. Uh, it is a fact of life. It's just how is it served. Well, this is interesting. David sent messengers, plural. See, there's some dialogue going on. 
It's not, he sent a messenger. Uh, what was David thinking? I want her. And that's it. The, the blinders were on. The tunnel vision was in place. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. So David, the next thing he did was let his own ladder down to hell. That's what David did. And that's what we can do. Paul, trying to put fires out all the time, when those Gentiles started flooding into the church, they did not have the benefit of the, of the Judaic upbringing. They had so much, you know, polygamy and just like the just so much junk when they came into Christianity. And all habits die, die hard. And he had to deal with these things. And he did. He says, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Anybody can understand that. <coughs> okay, you're going to get that from time to time tonight. So, <clears throat> verse 23 of Romans 7. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. It's in my flesh. It's in me. And I am a sinner. And so the Bible, of course, does not sweep any of this under the rug. It says, and she came to him. Again, there's the two it takes to tangle. No protest, no resistance. She would have been well within her right to say, I cannot do that. I am a married woman. She does not. And just because we attain something does not mean that we are entitled to it. You can find a, a wallet loaded with money, and it's not, therefore, yours automatically. It does not mean that God approves of something simply because he does not stop it. And this is one of the great lessons of the story. It says, in <clears throat> he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. This uh, is, the, is going to be repeated, but this is an indication that she was coming off of her cycle and therefore she was not pregnant, but she will be. And the, the historian is, is meticulous in giving us the essentials. And she returned to her house, uh, was the, likely flattered and ashamed at the same time. We have no reason to believe that she was a wicked woman. She stumbled into sin. Uh, he seduced her being, you know, the king and palace. And she being youthful. And um, she fell with, with David. Um, <clears throat> there will be more suffering than this. This is just the beginning. And they don't see that. They think that they've got away with, with the act. Verse 5, and the woman conceived, and so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Well, likely at least a month later, thus the purification that took place in verse 4. Uh, again, God never owes us protection from the sins of indulgences. He does give them sometimes, but he doesn't owe them. And, and many times he, he withdraws and lets, lets us learn the hard way. And this is going to be a hard lesson. Again, had David had been out to battle with things, how much differently, different would they be? Uh, being a good example as a leader uh, is especially difficult, and God knows that. And that's why when he tells the kings, I don't want you multiplying horses, I don't want you multiplying wives, I want you to get into the word, he, he was serious about that. And that's one area that uh, none of the kings uh, seem to have been interested in, and even David uh, and then now, you know, it's it sort of paved the way 
uh, that harem that he had that he should never have had. Uh, God will bring this up. He says, David, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. He, he, will, he will get him with that through the prophet uh, Nathan in, in next session. But uh, it, so therefore, it was the climax of, of years of, of not listening. Yeah, it's lonely at the top. It's difficult. But there are other things that God gives to sustain. And you have to learn them and, and work to fight and fight them, fight those appetites. Verse 6, then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now we know he's going to end up killing Uriah. And I think that is the worst of the crimes. Uh, the, the adultery was bad enough. This one was just pushed it over the top. Uh, but uh, when we get into David's reasoning, we can we understand, but we, we can't. That doesn't make it acceptable. It just warns us. It says, this is the stuff. You, if you're not careful, this is where you're going to be. And this is not meant, and any of this is not meant to tell us, don't worry. You know, God has ways out of these things. That is true. But at what price? Are you willing to pay that pound of flesh? Well, you know, Joab's at the city <clears throat> besieging it. The cover-up begins, and it is a plan that is destined for doom, ending in many deaths. The Bible paints men as they are, and women. It, it doesn't cover up, you know, the uh, blemishes. It puts them out in front. Proverbs 28, verse 13, speaking, this applies to David. <clears throat> he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. David will hide this sin for almost a year, at least. Well, the term of her pregnancy, uh, before he marries her, and then Nathan deals with that. And see, there's at least nine, nine and a half months. I mean, we, it's uh, of just that, that part of it. And then there's a time on the battlefield. This happens after the, the siege is over when Nathan confronts him, but I'm getting ahead. Verse 7, when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. <clears throat> David did not need this information from Uriah. He, in verse 18, makes it clear. He's other, this is, Uriah knows that. Why is the king asking me? It's like a private being called to the general or even a sergeant, you know, uh, called into the general's office and so how's it going on about it it's like that's not it's a staff officer question not for an enlisted man and um yeah there's maybe some exceptions but that's certainly out of protocol <clears throat> uh it is all an attempt to hide his sin you so uriah is probably saying this is this is a little strange verse 8 <clears throat> david said to uriah go down to your house wash your feet so Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. Well, Uriah is being told, wash your feet is, belongs to a euphemism, an idiom within the Hebrew. In other words, before you go to bed, you wash your feet. I want you to go home and sleep with your wife, and though he can cover up the pregnancy and say the child is Uriah's. be a problem if Uriah is not redheaded, and the child comes out with red hair, right? Uh, those questions, because we know David had red hair, and uh, that's, you know, you, you, we, we do, this is mildly humorous, but most of the harems, and for instance, in Turkey, the, uh, the overseers of the harems were Africans of dark skin, and that was one of the reasons why they, they did that. Anyhow, uh, they could, you know, 
suspicion would be aroused, and you'd have big problems from those sultans. David is underestimating the character of Uriah, and Uriah is overestimating the character of David. It's messed up in life. I, I don't like that, but this is a fact. So David sends a candlelight dinner, or a fruit basket, at least. He sends a dinner. But this is the awkward part. Bathsheba gets the candlelight dinner for two, and she's home alone. That's her first hint that David's trying to fix this, and it's not working, because Uriah does not come home. He stays at base housing, or in the barracks, I should say. But Uriah, verse 9, slept on the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. He doesn't sleep at the doorway. David would trip over them when he got up in the middle of the night to get that glass of milk. Uh, but it's, it's base housing. He's, he's there at the palace, the palace guard. He doesn't go home. Verse 10, so when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house. Interesting how they, others are involved in the cover-up. Uh, they know when they escorted Bathsheba in, they knew this was wrong. But he's the king, and they're, not, they're going to be loyal to him. David said to Uriah, verse 10, Did you come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? You came all this way. Why not? Any sane man would want to see his wife. It would be almost comical if it weren't so sin-filled and sin-involved. Uh, anyway... Some suggest that David was actually looking for the lesser of two evils. And, and as this progresses, I'd rather kill Uriah than have Bathsheba stoned to death. That is the condition he created. The two of them created together. The sins we do two by two, we answer for one by one. And he was going to have Uriah die a hero on the battlefield is how it turns out to be. And may we never find ourselves in such a position. Verse 11, And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah's devotion will get him killed. What? He's a man of God going to be killed by a man of God. And this sin is ruthless. It's God is saying, there's no jokes. This is serious business. How, what are you going to do, Christian, when faced with such things in life? The name Uriah means Yahweh is light. And in those days, light came from the sun or from fire, the flame. Yahweh is the flame. And he is certainly devoted to God. And when... When he says, and Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, that had to especially sting David. Because, you know, where is God on Uriah's behalf? That's a whole question we're going to get into because there are solid answers. And I'm not sure I'll have time to get into that tonight of why doesn't God rescue Uriah? And what if it were me? I'm a godly man. I'm serving a godly man. And he's going to put a hit on me. And why doesn't God do more? Protect my marriage. And we'll, we'll come to that at some point. But anyway, back to this. We um, have to remind ourselves. Well, I guess maybe this is the answer to remember. 
God is not exhausted from, by death. Death is really not death to God. Uriah will count this a small thing when he gets to eternity. I'm getting again ahead of myself, but think of this. David, Bathsheba, and Uriah share the same heaven at this very moment, and they've been sharing it for thousands of years. Do you think they're up there with a grudge? Of course not. So we have to retain that when, when we go through these spots, that God has a divine and eternal perspective. And we don't share all of that, and nor should we, because we might be ending our lives to hurry up and get to heaven, which would be... Um, Sin and wrong on many tears. But uh, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, he says. David had to cringe at these words because they were his words to the prophet Nathan. I'm dwelling in this palace of cedar and the ark of the covenant is in a tent. Uriah learned it as so many of them learned. We talked about Abishai, all these guys. He learned so much from David about God. And here is Uriah saying, I can't do this. The Ark of the Covenant was likely taken with them to the battlefield. It could have been in, in Jerusalem, uh, but it was likely taken with them to the siege. It's really not that important. What is important is that it was under a tent, and he was identifying that his duty was on the battlefield as the Ark of the Covenant had its duty given uh, to the people by God. And this haunted David, that he was living, uh, you know, he was up to no good. It haunted him throughout the year of broken communion, Psalm 32, which he wrote after he was the, the old ordeal was finalized. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all day long. So this bugged him. He was not casual about this. The thought that he was going to take out Uriah, he hated it. But he felt he was. this was the lesser of two evils. And he put up a fight as always. But he could not reverse the deed. It was what it was. It was too late for that now. And uh, he says, And my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are encamped in the open fields, which is another shot at David. The king should have been there. The, the, Uriah should have been saying something like that about David. Shall I then go to the house and eat, drink, and lie with my wife? Or what was David going to say? Yeah. Of course he could not say it to such a caliber of man as Uriah. Maybe Uriah felt he was being tested. Was David testing me? Why is he asking? Why is he doing this? Seems a little precise. He had to pick up on some of it. He couldn't have been just like that dense. Maybe he was. Anyway, uh, he says, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He slammed the door shut on pleasure first. And what does David do? He, well, he makes plans to cover up this sin. He takes it to the next stage. His guilt is compounded by his betrayal of a loyal man, of a man that will not betray others. David, the king, and he knows it's eating him alive that he's doing this, but yet the descent of sin, he's caught it. And uh, he, again, I feel strongly that he, he likely fell in love with Bathsheba, and he's going to protect her no matter what from the stoning. He, the law would call for both of them to be stoned. Nobody's going to stone the king. We, I mean, David, Saul killed the priest. Nobody lifted a finger. He's pretty much safe. She is the one that would suffer the most. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. 
this is a slow motion train wreck. That's what we're watching. Verse 13. Now David called him and ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his house. So he tried getting him drunk. Maybe that would work. Intoxicating substances that, uh, you know, they, they, they are thieves. They enter the body and they attack the brains. I didn't say the brain singular, though, that does that to the brains, the person's ability to reason. But it doesn't mess up Uriah. David is trapped. He's trapped by the integrity of a man that is interfering with his nefarious cover-up. Um, you know, I will take this verse. We have time. This, uh, going back to God not protecting Uriah, in Kings, there was uh, Jeroboam the king, was a creepy king, and uh, he had a child, a child got sick, and he sent the wife to the prophet to find out if the child would live or not. And God makes an interesting statement that is very revealing about God's perspective on life and death. And all Israel shall mourn for him, said the prophet to the mother. For he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward Yahweh, God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. He says, he's going to die because he's better in all, than all of you. Wow. Is that not insightful to how God approaches things from time to time with us? Uh, it's not that Uriah was a bad man. It tells me that God is not overly impressed with our staying alive in this life since he brings the righteous to a far better place. Well, even Uzzah went to a far better place. The children, the innocents of Bethlehem, from God's perspective, it was a blessing because they were in heaven. Antipas, my faithful servant, my faithful martyr, from God's perspective, it was a promotion. We can't lose sight of that. And yet, we have to balance that with we are here until God calls us home. Verse 14, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Deeper into sin, he sends orders by the victim's own hands, his own death warrant. Take this note to kill you to Joab. An honorable man being slain by another honorable man except for this. Verse 15 and he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. There it is. He's telling Joab to pull the trigger. The deed is done. And Joab reads this, of course, and so did somebody else find out about this at some point. Maybe David, you know, came clean in details as time moved on. But verse 16 continues the story. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. He's sending them on a suicide mission. Joab knows, okay, there's, here's where their elite troops are. And that's what he's going to attack. And David knew Joab would act without hesitation, without question, David was desperate at this point to hide his sin. And in those days, Joab was loyal to a fault for David. Joab and death often roomed together. And whenever Joab comes around, somebody's going to die. And he's going to be part of it in some way. 
I mean, it comes a time where, you know, he besieges the city and, and they, the old lady says, what do you, what do you got to do to get, get us out of this? And he says, you know, give us so-and-so. And she says, all right. And he threw his head over the wall a little later. And Joab said, oh, shucks. Man, I was hoping to wipe out the city. No, he didn't say that, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be a surprise if he did. Verse 17, then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. So very tragic. I, I could weep for David and the deaths that it caused. I mean, this is my hero. He is still my hero. Because God never uh, does not just is disqualify him. Because being the hero that he is, he does repent. When they were going out on this mission knowing how troops are, they had to be saying, this is the stupidest assignment. We're going to get killed. He's sending us into the mouth of the dragon. They knew attacking the wall like this was a death sentence. But they're loyal troops. They're going to do it. And you really, you know, if it comes down to a ground assault, somebody's got to be first. And um, David's motives did not make Uriah less the hero that he was because David was up to no good. Uriah is still a hero. It is as though God is showing us how evil the best of his servants can be and how forgiving he can be, how forgiving God can be of his servants. And uh, that is part of the, the, the fact. We need to see that as servants um, we read the story about David and we take care of Manasseh is worse, far worse than David and creates <clears throat> total mayhem in, Israel, in Judah. And yet he repents in the end. Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And Joab, an accomplice in the crime, blind loyalty, verse 19, and charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, Verse 20, if it happens that the king, king's wrath rises, and he says to you, why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Verse 21, who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Was it not a woman cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Joab is anticipating David's displeasure with his tactics because they both know, come from the same uh, military school of warfare, of you know, city siege and uh, besieging. Joab is covering himself. He says, listen, we, we, we both, David and I know the manual on this, the protocol to attack a city, the tactic. This ain't the right one. And he's, he might become pretty upset when he finds out that I employed this tactic because Joab's orders was to attack the city and then pull back and leave Uriah there. And Joab says, well, you know, that's too obvious. I mean, everybody's going to see that as, you know, hey, hey, Uriah, you stay and everybody else come back. So Joab says, how am I going to do this? And I know, we'll just attack the wrong wall and I'll put him up front and those arrows, the archers will get him because it's a dumb move. Verse 28, I guess if the archers did, did not get him, Joab would have said, I'll get him. <laughs> Be my pleasure. Verse 22, so the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab, 
had sent by him, and remember Joab is covering himself when, in giving these instructions, verse 23, and the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us, verse 23, and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. In verse 24, the archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the servant, king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So he doesn't do it Joab's way. He says, I'm going to tell the story right out. I'm not giving the king a chance to yell at me. I don't want to see him, you know. I'm just going to tell him Uriah's dead. And uh, David, he just, you know, pretty much, well, this is war. As he pretends to be um, ignorant of the whole thing. But... uh, the dreadful knoll of self-loathing is going on on the inside. There's no question about that. The wages of sin are death. And there it is, the first few casualties, because Uriah did not die alone, verse 24. Uh, some of the king's servants are dead, all because of David. Verse 25, then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. The masquerade. Using fluffy military talk. Such is war. It happens, Joab. Now get back in there and win. Verse 26. Joab's not fooled by any of that. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. She, she probably did like love him. I mean, just it doesn't instantly mean because she was unfaithful in that way. I know that's hard for us, maybe harder for some than others to understand. Anywhere, anyway, um, it is, um, there is a pathetic repetition taking place in this chapter. There's two of them. And the name of David is 23 times shows up in this chapter, not counting pronouns, just the name. Uriah, his name shows up 21 times in 27 verses. It is, um, it's supposed to be eerie like that. There is no indication that she was aware that David had done this at this point. She'll learn later, and I guess she accepts it. She figures it out. He saved my life, and I caused the death of my husband. Verse 27, And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did, had done displeased Yahweh. Oh, customary seven days, perhaps more of the mourning period. She becomes his wife. <clears throat> David had done this with Abigail when she became a widow, not by the hand of David. And so David's looking like a pretty compassionate man. You know, he he takes widows in. He takes care of the widows. Well, not really. Uh, (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, So on the surface, it was similar, but uh, beneath the surface, uh, nothing in common. Bore him a son. Um, So we're now about almost a year away from the event. But the thing did not. The thing that David did had not. Pardon me. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. And there again, the dramatic music would play at this point. The historian could not omit this. It was just not in him, and rightfully so. 
the scriptures are anointed by God, the Spirit of God, uh, writing through these these characters, these human beings, these believers. And it is, of course, indicating to us that the story is not over, that God is going to deal with this. Uh, Here we have this accomplished king going back to being a faithful shepherd boy, faithful to his parents. You know, when he shows up at the battlefield, well, almost battlefield, when Goliath would come out, and he's still a faithful lad. And we talked about how reliable he was. He left the sheep in someone else's care. He does what his father tells him to do. He's intolerant of blasphemy, and, uh, and he is, commits to do so. He slays the giant. And then he walks around with the head. He takes it to Jerusalem and says, pretty much, you know, this is... This is Moriah. This belongs to us. Uh, His military exploits, twice sparing the life of Saul when he could have killed him and would have been justified, the writing of Psalms, the rescue of Keilah, uh, taking Zion, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, dancing before it with all his might. God doesn't just sweep that off the way and say, yeah, but you sinned and that's that. This This is David too. There's more to the man than his sin. I try to tell most folks, and when they have really goofed up in counseling, I would say to them, you know, there's more to you than this. If we're going to go forward, if you're going to survive this, and a righteous fact, because you, you can survive it and be bitter towards God or just useless after that, or going forward, you can, can, can make this thing work uh, better than it would if you just gave up. There's more to you than the sin. And... Uh, This is the case with David, and that's why I'm bringing these things up. And when pastors are in this arena of restoring the sinner, and that's what it is, because what makes it an arena? What makes it a place of confrontation is other Christians. Other Christians judging the the grace. Well, I think he should have been. And I think, and I, and and just sometimes, sometimes, you know, uh, know, certainly pastors can goof, make a mistake, and they're, their call that comes with the territory, uh, but hopefully not as a, as a pattern. But over the years, I know of times when, when you see, you know, God forgives of this, and we just got to go forward. And I'll go forward with you if you're willing to, to own up to it. And then I'm hearing, you know, from other people, so-and-so was really upset with that. They think they should have been kicked out of the church or something like And sometimes they do need to be defrocked. It's just, you know what, you did the sin under our nose and just don't work here. You've got to find another place to worship. But another place to worship you should find. It's not like you're banished from church for the rest of your life, you filthy, no good, miserable sinner. Boy, that would be hell. And yet there's some that just don't see it. Anyway, David and Uriah, they, you know, you know they two righteous men. Satan got hold of the situation. And uh, to understand the powers of forgiveness. I close with this verse. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. The thief on the cross, how many families did he mess up? How many things did he steal? How How much harm did he do? And yet today you will be with me in paradise? Would not somebody say, I object? For she loved much, Jesus said about her, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. That means when he says 
little is forgiven, they're not mindful of how much they've been forgiven. Because forgiven people, when God forgives, he's forgiven much. Every single time. And if you don't see that, then you're the one that has been forgiven little. And it's on you. And so this, uh, we'll continue with this story into the next chapter when the man of God, Nathan, uh, comes forward and more lessons for us. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, uh, thank you again every night, every time we open your word. There's something to thank you about because these things make us better serve you. And we who love you want to do better all the time. Once again, we lift up our campers, their little precious lives. We lift up the counselors, how much they sacrifice to do what they're doing. They do it for you because of your Holy Spirit in them, and we thank you for that. And our pastors who also give of themselves, because it is worth it, we thank you and we lift them up to you. Their safety, Lord, and their growth. In Jesus' name, we pray. One other thing, may you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.